CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In today's episode, Philip Goff responds to recent critiques of panpsychism by theoretical physicist Sean Carroll and Sabine Hossenfelder and explores some implications for the science of consciousness. Philip Goff is a philosopher of consciousness at the University of Durham, and his research focuses on integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview. His 2019 book, Galileo's Error, sets out his defense of panpsychism rooted in an analysis of the work of Arthur Eddington and Bertrand Russell. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Philip Goff to Philosophy for Our Times. Okay, so one of my summer projects was finishing editing a collection of essays on panpsychism with contributions by scientists as well as philosophers. Scientists, for example, Carlo Rovelli and Sean Carroll and Lee Smolin and Anil Seth. Uh, and I was, my original plan was to talk through a lot of these essays and sort of discuss them, but I realized that would just take too long. So what I've decided to do is just focus on two critiques of panpsychism by theoretical physicists one by uh, Sabine, Hossen, Sabine Hossenfelder, which, which wasn't in the volume, actually. It was a, a blog post from a couple of years ago that got quite a lot of attention. And one that is in the volume by Sean Carroll. So that's the first thing I want to do. I want to show how respond to those critiques, show how I think they don't really work against panpsychism in the way they intend to. And then the second part of thing I want to do towards the end is just to connect this to broader issues in the science of consciousness. I want to suggest that the considerations that come up in responding to these critiques point the way, a possible way forward for the science of consciousness, a way of overcoming a deep difficulty at the heart of the science of consciousness that we've been wrestling with for at least 150 years. And incidentally, if anyone's interested, a lot, a lot, of, the volu- a lot of the essays are already online, and I've got a, a, a link to them all for, from my, my horribly titled blog, Conscience and Consciousness, that is a really bad name, but which is also linked to from my website if anyone's interested. Okay, so, just a quick introduction to panpsychism. We're going to sort of clarify it more as, as the talk goes on. But it's basically the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the physical world. It doesn't necessarily mean that literally everything is conscious. The, the basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, have incredibly simple forms of experience and that the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from the very simple experience of the brain's most basic parts. Okay, so straight on with the critique. So Sabina Hossenfelder has argued that there is inevitably a clash between panpsychism and the standard model. What is the standard model? This is our best theory of uh, fundamental particles. It postulates 25 particles and characterizes them in terms of 
three of the four known forces, electromagnetism, weak and strong nuclear force. And Sabina's thought is, well look, the standard model characterizes particles in terms of physical properties like mass, charge, spin. If particles also had these weird non-physical consciousness properties, presumably that would affect their behavior and we'd have predictions that differ from the predictions of the standard model because the standard model just predicts their behavior on the basis of their physical properties. So we'd end up with a clash. The standard model is very well confirmed, so we should reject panpsychism. Okay, it's a very intuitive thought, I think. The problem is I think Sabina just misunderstands the view, or at least she's not talking about the kind of panpsychism that has been much discussed in contemporary philosophy, which has become known as Rossellian panpsychism, so-called because it was inspired by certain things Bertrand Russell wrote in the 1920s. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about this. So, so the problem is Sabina's thinking of um, panpsychism in dualist terms. And a lot of people do think that. It's a kind of natural way. So you think like the electron has its physical properties like mass and charge and also these non-physical consciousness properties. But that's not the view of the Rossellian panpsychist. The view of the Rossellian panpsychist is that the physical properties of mass, spin, and charge are forms of consciousness. That is the view. Sounds kind of weird at first. How, do, how on earth do we make sense of that? So let's talk a little bit more about, spell out a bit more this Rossellian panpsychist view. So the starting point, it, Russell's kind of insight was that physics tells you less than you might have thought about the nature of reality. In the public mind, we have this idea that physics is giving us this rich story of the nature of space and time and matter. But actually, when you actually look at the information we're getting from physics, it's really all about what stuff does. It's about behavior, right? Physics tells us particles have mass and spin and charge, and these properties are completely characterized in terms of what they do. Mass is characterized in terms of gravitational attraction and resistance to acceleration charge in terms of attraction and repulsion. This is all about what these properties do in the sense of how they dispose particles to behave. Interesting philosophical question. Does this information about the behavior of mass tell us anything about the nature of mass? Put it another way, what is the connection between the nature of mass and its behavior? Well, there are broadly speaking two philosophical camps here, dispositional essentialism, represented, for example, by Barbara Vetter here, or my colleague Stephen Mumford. So they think the nature of mass is just defined by what it does. Once you know everything there is to know about what mass does, you know what mass is. But an equally popular view, quiddatism, sounds a little bit Harry Potter, but don't worry about that, represented by the late great philosopher king David Lewis. Uh, according to this view, the nature of mass is not defined by what it does. This view makes a sharp distinction between what mass does and what it is. Okay, so there are various arguments back and forth uh, between these two views. I happen to think the first one is incoherent. I've tried to press a line of argument from Russell for that, but you know we can take them roughly to be equal possible metaphysical options. And the panpsychist goes for the quiddatist option. So the nature of mass is distinct from its behavior. But if you go for this quiddatist option, there's, there's a question, you know, what is the nature of mass? We can't look to physics, might sound surprising that you can't look to physics, but physics is just telling you what it does. And on this view, that's distinguished from what it is. 
So we end up with a kind of gap, a kind of hole in our scientific story of the universe. So the genius of Russell in the analysis of matter in 1927 was to put consciousness in that hole. Right? We, we struggle to find a place for consciousness in our scientific picture of the world. We've got this hole. Maybe we can put consciousness in the hole. So on the, uh, the Russellian panpsychist extension of this, which is not quite the view Russell held, but it's closely related, mass just is a very simple form of consciousness. Physics tells you what it does, but in terms of what it is, it's a, it's a very elementary form of consciousness. So on this view, when you're doing physics, you are studying forms of consciousness. You don't know that's what you're doing, because when you're doing physics, you're just interested in behavior. I, I sometimes put it, you know, when you're doing physics, it's like playing chess. When you're just interested in what the pieces do. You're not interested in what they're made of. But nonetheless, unbeknownst to you, that, that is what you're doing. So I think once we, once we realize that this is what the view is, I think Sabina's position just doesn't hit target, because she's assuming that you know, everything the particle does is determined by the, the properties of the standard model. That's what the panpsychist thinks, right? They just have a different metaphysical, philosophical theory of the nature of those properties. They think they're forms of consciousness. Whereas Sabina talks about the standard model, Sean focuses on the core theory, which is the standard model combined with the weak field limit of general relativity. So you may know that there's this difficulty reconciling general relativity, our best theory of big things, and quantum mechanics, our best theory of little things. But as I understand it, I'm not a physicist, um, the, the clash only arises in certain non-terrestrial circumstances like inside a black hole or something. We have very high gravity. For the, the, the matter in ordinary, in bodies and brains, we can actually bring quantum mechanics and general relativity together by just taking the standard model and the weak field limit of, of general relativity. So Sean Carroll thinks we should have great confidence that we do now already have the complete and final um, physical theory of the matter in bodies and brains. And then his thought is, well, look, if consciousness is a fundamental property having an impact on the brain, this will result in brains doing things not predicted by the core theory, because the core theory doesn't talk about consciousness. So it's a bit like Sabina's objection, but at the level of brains rather than particles. OK, well, in responding to this, let's look at a little bit more detail into panpsychism. So broadly speaking, there are two forms of this Russellian panpsychist view, which I sometimes call weak emergentism and strong emergentism. So the weak emergentist think that, thinks that facts about human consciousness are nothing over and above complex arrangements of conscious particles. So perhaps an analogy for this, the for, the, for the weak emergentist, the relationship between a conscious brain and the, the conscious particles that make it up is a little bit like the relationship between a party and the people partying, right? That once you've got people drink, drinking, dancing, you've got a party. That all it is for there to be a party is for there to be people dancing and drinking. All there is for it to be a, to be a festival is for people to be giving talks and listening and so on. Similarly, for the weak emergentist, all it is for there to be a conscious brain is for conscious particles to be arranged in the right way. So it's a very reductionist picture. Uh, this is represented by Luke Roloffs, for example, in his book Combining Minds. The other view, strong emergentism, holds that there are new fundamental entities and or forms of consciousness at the neurophysiological level. So they don't, they don't need, they need to think these just pop into being. Typically, they will think the interactions of conscious particles bring about the conscious mind of the human and its consciousness, causally bring it about. 
Nonetheless, they think that the, the human mind is distinct from extra to the facts about the particles that give rise to it. So a different analogy, you know, my, the interactions of my parents produce me, but I'm obviously distinct from extra to my parents. Similarly, for the strong emergentist, the human mind or the animal mind is distinct from an extra to the, the conscious particles that sustain its existence. So this is represented by another great philosopher, Hedda Hassel-Murk. My own view, I try to have a hybrid of the two. Okay, so let's take each of these in turn, thinking about Sean Carroll's critique. First, weak emergentism. I think it just misses target, because you know, for the weak emergentist, it's a very reductionist story, right? Uh, facts about human consciousness are, are, are nothing over and above uh, complex arrangements of conscious particles. So look, so it's just like materialism in a sense. Materialism holds that what's going on in brains is just complex arrangements of the properties of the standard model, or the core theory more generally. The weak emergentist thinks exactly the same. They think what's going on in brains is just complex arrangements, properties of the core theory. They just have a different philosophical view of the nature of those properties. They think they're forms of consciousness. So if there's no clash between materialism and physics, there's no clash between weak emergentism and physics. Okay, so that's just totally misses target. What about strong emergentism? So things are more complicated here, right? Because for the strong emergentists, there are these new fundamental entities of consciousness at the neurophysiological level. And these new entities are not just combinations of the properties identified by the core theory. And so it does look like you are, on this view, going to end up with predictions different from the core theory. Because the core theory just predicts what ba brains are going to do in terms of uh, the properties of fundamental physics. But on this view, there's these new properties that emerge at the level of the brain, and they're influencing what the brain does. So I mean, I don't know whether a helpful analogy is Laplace's demon, the 19th century physicist Laplace, imagine this super intelligent entity who knows all the facts of fundamental physics and all the laws. So let's say they've got the core theory, and, and they've got unlimited rational faculties. And they look at the particles making up my brain, and they predict what's going to happen based on known physics. For the strong emergentists, they're going to make some mistakes because it's not just the properties of physics that are driving the brain. There's also these new properties that emerge at the system level. Okay, so there will be, Sean is right, Sean Carroll is right that the strong emergentist panpsychism will depart from the predictions of our best physics. But where I disagree with him is I don't think we should construe this as a conflict with physics. I don't think we should construe it as a conflict with the core theory. The strong emergentist panpsychist can say the core theory is perfectly correct on its own terms. What is the core theory? This is you know, our best physics. It's a theory of the causal capacities of particles and fields, right? I think we can, the strong emergentist can say, yeah, Sean's right that the core theory is totally correct on those terms. But for the strong emergentist, it's not just those properties running the show. There are also these new systems-level properties. And when they emerge, they co-determine how the brain will behave in conjunction with the causal capacities of particles and fields. So this is going to ultimately require detailed theory and testable predictions, right? The strong emergentist is ultimately going to have to show what are these new causal capacities, you know, what, what do they do, and how do they work together with the properties of fundamental physics to determine what's going to happen in the brain, and that's going to be ultimately testable. Nonetheless, 
It's not a clash. This isn't violating physics. This is such a huge mistake. It's not, we should see this as, this, this, this emergent theory as complementing rather than contradicting physics. Because it's the same point with free will. I think people assume if there was strong libertarian free will, it would clash with physics. That's not correct. It, just because there's something extra to physics running how the universe evolves, that doesn't mean you're violating physics. It just means you're not a materialist, right? So it's wrong and misleading to construe this as a clash with physics. That's just a philosophical mistake, and it makes, you, makes it sound like the theory is obviously wrong, right? You know, because we've got these really well-confirmed theories in physics. Okay, so look, strong emergentism, panpsychism, is a view not about physics. It's a view about the brain. It's a view that these new forms of consciousness emerge with the brain that weren't there all along in the basic physics. So if there's going to be evidence for or against it, it's not going to come from physics. You know, it's going to come from neuroscience. So is there a clash with strong emergentism and neuroscience? I used to think there were. If you study philosophy, you sort of get taught in a philosophy of mind course that there is a clash here. But the more I've talked to neuroscientists and read neuroscience, I just don't think we are anywhere near knowing enough about the brain to know one way or another. Um, you know, I think the basic situation is we know a lot about the basic chemistry in the brain, how neurons fire, action potentials, calcium chambers, neurotransmitters. We know a fair bit about large-scale functions of the brain. What we are pretty much clueless on is how those large-scale functions are realized at the cellular level. So how it works, you know, how these functions are realized. I mean, people get very excited by brain scans, but each pixel of an fMRI image, it's very low resolution, right? Each pixel corresponds to 5.5 million neurons. And we are only 70% of the way through putting together a complete connectome of a maggot's brain with its 10,000 neurons, whereas the human brain has 86 billion neurons. Um, you know, I think that just puts things in perspective. I mean, what really, this was building in my mind the more I work and talk to neuroscientists, but reading actually Matthew Cobb's book, um, The Idea of the Brain, really brought this home to me. And these couple of last facts are from that. I mean, he's not at all sympathetic to panpsychism or anything, but just on how little we know about how the brain works. And again, with libertarian free will, I think, you know, people, so many people think this has just conclusively demonstrated that we don't have strong free will in the sense of uncaused decisions we would have to know a hell of a lot more about how large-scale functions are realized at the cellular level in order to decisively work out whether everything, whether those functions are just reducible to underlying physics and chemistry, or whether there are new systems-level properties that kick in. The final thing I would like to do here is connect this to broader issues in the science of consciousness. Why, how does this help us potentially move forward on the science of consciousness? So towards the end of the 1990s, so you've, most people heard about the hard problem of consciousness, this very deep mystery. One common reaction people have is to say, okay, let's just put the hard problem of consciousness on one side. That's too difficult. What we can do is focus on the quote-unquote easier problem of tracking the, the neural correlates of consciousness, the NCC, working out what kinds of brain activity correspond to what kinds of conscious experience. Now, so towards the end of the 1990s, the neuroscientist Christoph Koch had a bet with David Chalmers. He bet him a, a case of fine wine that in 25 years, we would have completely mapped out the neural correlates of consciousness. It looks like he's about to lose that bet because 
you know, it's a mess. We've got lots of different theories, different views about whether consciousness is in the front of the brain or the back of the brain. Very little way of thinking how we can make consensus here. And I think the, the problem at the core of this is that consciousness is not publicly observable. You can't look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences. So to do the science, you what we have to have is what I call detection procedures. We have to have principles that link observable behavior to conscious, unobservable conscious experience. So here's one of them, what I call the report principle, that if a subject has an experience, they can report it. So once, if you accept that principle, then we can see how you can do some neuroscience, how you can track the neurocorrelates, because you want to know if someone's having an experience? Ask them. Trouble is, all these detection procedures are controversial. So some people, many people, like um, Ned Block, for example, accept what's become known as the overflow thesis, that there are experiences that we are unable to attend to. How do you, why would anyone think there are experiences you're unable to attend to? Well, there's, you know, it's quite well established now that there are significant limits on how much we're able to attend to at one time. So what do you do with that? You go two ways. Some people say, all I'm really ex consciously experiencing is what I can attend to. Whereas other philosophers say, no, I am actually experiencing all the intricate detail and the feeling of the clothes on my body and the sounds outside. It's just I'm limited on what I can attend to in my experience. So then you're going to have the result that there are some things you're actually experiencing. It's part of your conscious experience, but you can't attend to it. And then we start to get exceptions to the report principle. And this isn't just an abstract philosophical debate. This leads to very different theories of the neuroscience, the neural correlates of consciousness. So this isn't the hard problem. This was supposed to be the easy problem. So if, like Hakuan Lau, you accept the report principle, then you're going to tend to locate consciousness in the front of the brain. If you deny it, like Ned Block, you're going to tend to locate it at the back of the brain. Why is that? Because those who accept the report principle, there is a tight connection between something being conscious and it being available for cognition. And the prefrontal cortex, front of the brain, is, is responsible for cognitive processes, like working memory. So there's just this very deep difficulty about how we do the science. Now, you know, there are ways of responding to this and having kind of indirect arguments, but it essentially becomes philosophy, metaphysics. It's very hard to see how we can do, you know, real experimental science with this. However, so I'm in, I am inclined to accept this strong emergentist view on philosophical grounds. I think it's an open question empirically. We don't know enough about how the brain works to establish it one way or another. But on philosophical grounds, for example, I'm, I can't go into this now, but I'm increasingly skeptical about a kind of reductionist picture of rationality or agency. So I am inclined on philosophical grounds to accept this strong emergentist view that there are new fundamental entities, systems level properties in the brain. If that turns out to be true, uh, then we have a, a possible way forward on this deep difficulty that's been going on for about 150 years. There's a great paper by Matthias Michel arguing how we've been having this dispute over like the report principle since the 19th century. Okay, but if strong emergentism is true, then identifying strongly emergent causal dynamics will be a major piece of evidence in establishing the neural correlates of consciousness. If it turns out, for example, that there are strongly emergent dynamics in the back of the brain, but not in the front of the brain, that is to say there are causal dynamics that are not reducible to underlying chemistry or physics, that will be a very strong experimental reason to locate consciousness 
there. And this isn't just a sort of abstract possibility. Uh, there are people engaged in this. So Martin Picard in the uh, mitochondrial psychobiology lab at Columbia University is exploring experimentally the hypothesis that mitochondria in the brain form social networks. And we should understand their behavior not by reducing it to underlying chemistry, but as kind of irreducible social networks. The neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell, who is not a fan of panpsychism, very hostile to panpsychism, but does believe in some kind of strongly emergent dynamics in the brain and is exploring ways of, of modeling them. So these seem to me the most exciting ways forward uh, on, on the science of consciousness. Now, I don't think, you know, this doesn't necessarily entail panpsychism. I think, you know, because consciousness is not publicly observable, I don't think you can ever totally pin down a theory of consciousness with experiments. I, I think if, so if it were established, as I tentatively think it will one day be, that there is strong emergence in the brain, that leaves open two philosophical possibilities. One, naturalistic dualism, represented by David Chalmers here, the view that consciousness strongly emerges from totally non-conscious brain processes. Two, panpsychism, represented by my book, quick plug, that consciousness strongly emerges from simpler forms of consciousness. Complex consciousness strongly emerges from simpler forms of consciousness. So, I mean, I think probably that's as far as we could go with experiments. You just, consciousness is not publicly, you can't look in an electron to see if it's conscious. You just leave open both of those options. But I think at that point, there's a really strong simplicity argument in favor of the panpsychist option. As scientists and philosophers, we aim for the most parsimonious, elegant, unified theory of reality. So this view believes you know, that there's, there's just consciousness. Much more simple, elegant, unified view. So I'll end with a bet. So Christoph Koch had his bet 25 years ago. Here's my bet. I think we will eventually, we're nowhere near that stage where we'll eventually establish that consciousness is strongly emergent, which leaves open either naturalistic dualism or panpsychism. And then I think at that point, panpsychism as the simpler, more parsimonious, elegant option will just come to seem obviously true. And um, we'll all be panpsychists. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.